Our text continues in verse 7 with the opening of the fourth seal. It says, When the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death and Hades and was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by the sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. Let's begin with prayer. Father, I ask as we look to your word this morning that your Holy Spirit would really be our tutor and our guide, Lord, that even though there are comments and remarks I will make, Lord, I know that in the end it's only when your Holy Spirit speaks to our hearts that we really experience that transformational, insightful power that you alone can give. And so, Lord, we ask that the name of Jesus would be lifted up, that the truth of your word would be recognized, and that we would allow it to have its profound power and effect upon our lives, that we might be conformed to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. You know, if you take any time studying the writings of various ancient cultures, um, beginning with some of the earliest, about 4,000 years, 4,000 BC, over 6,000 years ago, you discover that there are certain cultural commonalities. Um, it, it doesn't matter where you look at it, whether you're talking about the Aztecs or the Mayans or the Buddhists, the Zoroastrians, Hindus, Native Americans, Mesopotamians, Assyrians, Babylonians. Persians, Greek, Chinese, Roman, Vikings, as well as Muslim, Jews, and Christians. Every one of them in their cultures had basically a religion. Uh, they recognized that there was a higher power. Uh, they had rules and regulations and rituals and a list of uh, really proscribed behaviors, a list of sins of things you should not do. And they also had things that were prescribed punishments for things that you should receive as a consequence of having broken those rules. And so, you know, for people who are a little more open-minded, they agree that with Solomon who said that mankind is inherently religious. The religious isn't something that we just simply create out of our own minds, but there's something within us. In fact, Solomon put it this way. He said, God has set eternity in our hearts he set our eternity in our hearts. In fact, in other words, that there is an eternal one. And as a consequence, he said at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, the conclusion of the matter is, fear God, keep his commandments, and this is the whole duty or the whole purpose of man's life. In other words, if you want to understand what really you're here for, it is to live your life in yieldedness, submission to God. And the more you do that, the more fulfilled your life becomes. The more you resist that or reject that, the more empty and troubled and unfulfilling your life becomes. There's also, though, one other thing that every society shares. It's a deep trepidation that there's going to be a sudden and cataclysmic end of the world. So that as a consequence, most people live with what the writer of Hebrews described in Hebrews 10. He said, a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. It's interesting that this fear is not something that I would say is unfounded or even irrational, as some people would like to say. That our planet that we live on may be firmly planted, but it is also thinly suspended by mysterious forces. You see, we give names to those forces, like we call them gravitons or magnet magnetism or dark matter. And unless you believe in God, you can only guess where those powers come from and how they work. And that's why they call it science. But if you add to it our own ability to self-destruct as a creature, we do it through our waste and through our wars and through our weaponry and our technology, even as we've most recently rediscovered through our bioweaponry. It's an amazing thing. that, that we, And if you add to that the fact that we are surrounded by natural disasters, that there are things that 
are out there, we're told, like planet-crushing asteroids that would crash into the earth and drive us back into the Stone Age. Or solar flares, you know, the, the EMPs, the electromagnetic pulses, those sun flares that come off the sun that at the right moment, at the right time, they say there's only a 100% chance that it's going to happen. The last one was in 1859, and it completely wiped out the only electric utility there was in the world at that time, and that was the telegraph system. Completely wiped it out and had to be rebuilt. And they say it was just a matter of time before there will be another significant enough solar flare that will fr simply fry everything that has a circuit on it, which, I mean, you think about it, how much can that add up to? Your car won't run, your refrigerator will stop refrigerating, you know. It just, the, the list of things is staggering. Your phone will be dead. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a frightening thing. And they said, well, if that happens, it said, there's all these variables. It depends on which side of the earth you're on when it hits. <laughs> so, you know, you hope it's the other guys that get full blast. But the other side of it is, is that uh, unlike people on the other side who have already started making plans to harden their systems, uh, we in the United States, for reasons that are a little bit inexplicable, have not really put much time, energy, or effort into protecting against that. But the only downside, they says, if it happens that 90% of the Earth's population will die within a year, mostly of starvation. So that's the good news. Now, <laughs> because I think that's even a more frightening prospect is that we could have four more years. I mean, <laughs> and that makes all the other dangers moot. <laughs> but I mean, even if you look at it from a historical perspective, there is a lot of precedent for concern uh, because there have been events that at least those who were caught up in them would have thought, many times thought, were Earth world ending experiences. For example, in the year 1600 BC, uh, the island of Thera, there was an eruption of the island of Thera. Now, the good side of it is it ended up leaving a caldera, which is modern-day Santorini, which is one of the most lovely places on the planet. But basically, we don't know how many people were killed. The, the city of Akrotiri is, is there on the island, still buried under 60 feet of ash. It's interesting, these primitive people on Akrotiri 1,600 years ago had running water, hot and cold, and indoor plumbing. So, <laughs> toilets and so forth, very primitive people, but completely buried that, but it also brought to the end the Minoan Empire and the Hittite Empire, and the debris field went all the way 1,500 miles into Egypt along the Nile. An amazing catastrophe that wiped out we don't, untold tens of thousands of people. In 79, there was Mount uh, AD, there was Mount Vesuvius that erupted and completely buried Pompeii and Herculaneum. Uh, in 1400, there was a Black Death, bubonic plague that swept through Europe. Half of Europe's population died from the bubonic plague, someplace between uh, 50 and 60 million people. And talking about pushing Europe in, back into the Dark Ages, it retarded the culture tremendously. And then in 1883, there was Krakatoa that erupted off of India, uh, uh, Indonesia and led to the deaths of around 40,000 people. In 1908, the Tunguska asteroid hit Siberia and completely leveled 800 square miles of property. Fortunately, it wasn't that big an asteroid. In 2004, there was the Indian Ocean tsunami. Remember that one? Led to the death of 230,000 people. See, even in the 20th century, it's estimated that 231 million people have died because of war, 120 million of starvation, and 143 million from disease. So this idea, the fear of mass extinction, may explain why so many multi-billionaires, including Mark Zuckerberg or OpenFace AI CEO Sam Altman or PayPal co-founder Peter Thiel, and, and a number of others are building these secret luxury doomsday bunkers, escape pads, if you will, in various remote places. I think the only one who's got it right is Zuckerberg. He's building his on Maui. But the whole point is that these are fortified 
and restricted areas that are designed to sustain them if everything falls apart. They have their own food supply, their own energy supply, and so forth and so on. Now, they are doing it probably because they can, and you and I can't, but also it makes you wonder, what do they know that we don't know? See, I wonder if this is actually what John talks about later on chapter 16, or 6, excuse me, in verse 15, where he says, the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, the tech millionaires, hid in caves among the rocks of the mountains and say, save us from the judgment that's to come. Well, I think that they would be far better served to pay attention to the one source that over the millennia has accurately foretold future events and really provides the only viable way of escape, and that is the Bible, the Word of God. For not only is the Bible accurately predicted past cataclysms, remember a couple of them, one called the flood, another comes Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, things that it said would come and were delivered by the hand of God, but it also tells about a lot of coming attractions. <laughs> That's why we're studying the book of Revelation. As we've been seeing in this book, the, the Bible foretells that there will be seven years of divinely directed judgments, each of them coming increasingly with intensity, culminating in the second coming of Jesus Christ. Of course, the biggest question people always ask is, well, when is this going to happen? And uh, I think, lest we forget, just as a reminder that Jesus said several things. He said, first of all, no one will know the day or the hour, that it will come like a thief in the night and catch people who aren't watching for it unexpectedly. But he also said that we could read the signs of the times, that there would be evidence, indicators, but we would only see it if we have eyes to see it, ears to hear it and be able to be willing to listen to what the voice of the Spirit is saying to us. So that I say to many people that if Christ's return ruins your future plans, you're probably in some serious trouble right now. Because it says he will appear the second time, Paul said in 2 Timothy, he will appear the second time to those who long for and love and look forward to his appearing. And maybe that's why the apocalyptic events that are foretold in the Bible are increasingly ignored, not only within general society, but even within the church, which is always staggering to me to hear somebody say, well, I believe the Bible, I take it literally, I just don't talk about that part of the Bible. And I think that um, when John said, if you read it, God will bring a blessing on you, and uh, I, I've always been looking for an opportunity to have a blessing. But I think this is highly unfortunate because every indication to me is that we are living in those times, especially as evidenced by the increasing pressure upon the end of the nation state as we know it, and the adoption of, of a one-world globalism with one-world government, one-world economy, one-world religion. And I would simply say that people who like that idea, it makes a lot of sense, outwardly at least. I mean, everybody wants the world to have unity and prosperity and equity, world peace, the end of war and violence and so forth and so on. But yet we have to remember that Paul warned us that just the opposite is what's going to happen as we move towards the end. When he said that evil men will wax worse and worse, and then he warned in 1 Thessalonians 5, he says, while people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. So it doesn't matter how much food you've stored up in your locker, how much concertina wire you've put around your yard, how much, um, how much ammo you've stored up or how many gun turrets you've built in the walls of your house. The reality is, he said, it will take people in ways that they hadn't anticipated. The people will be caught by surprise. It won't come in the way or the form of the fashion that they anticipated. You see, the idea of one world government will coincide with the arrival, as we've talked about, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the four, first four seals that are opened in, in chapter 6. 
that they will not bring democracy, but they will bring totalitarianism. They will not bring peace, they'll bring militarism and war. They will not bring equity, but they'll bring economic oppression and poverty. And in the end, as we just read, they're not going to bring your best life now, but they're going to bring death, disease, and destruction on a massive scale when it says a quarter of the earth's population perishes. If that were today, we'd be talking about nearly two billion people on the planets whose lives would be ended. And you say, well, how in the world can that happen? And yet the same skeptics will talk about electronic magnetic pulses from solar flares that will wipe out 90% of the earth's population. This is why, this is why globalism has been on Satan's agenda from before the very beginning. First of all, he hates you. You bear the image of God. You were created in his image. He can't stand that fact. And in fact, he not only would do anything to crush you, but he also likes to get you focused on the lack of your own physical perfection. Now, my son sent me a video last night, which was very interesting, of a church service where uh, they were having a healing, and what they were healing is uh, stomachs that weren't flat. And so they were praying for, you know, they're praying over these, these women who were standing there with their, their extended stomachs, you know, and he was praying that God would flatten their stomach. And I'm thinking to myself, just suck in. <laughs> I got my miracle. My son then wrote a little caption. He says, what you can't see off screen is the other pastor pulling her finger. <laughs> For those of you who don't get that, we're going to have an explanation after the service. But. but you see, Satan's objective is to destroy your life, to make it as miserable and as fearful and as horrible as he possibly can, because he hates you because you were created in God's image and he has a wonderful plan for your life. He has an eternal destiny that he has created for you. He hates that because his eternal destiny is not very good. He's going to suffer in torment for all of eternity. But given that fact, what he has done consistently throughout history has made promises to violent, despotic psychopaths, much like what he promised to Jesus if Jesus would bow down to him. He said in Luke 4, 5, and 6, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world with all of their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want." So that soon after the flood, we see him beginning to move into that effort with the choice of a man by the name of Nimrod. Genesis 10 or 11 tells us that he built the first empire. It was called the land of Nimrod. And he became the first of many who left behind them trails of death and destruction and there have been many through history, Alexander the Great and Genghis Khan and Attila the Hun and Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin and Mao and even they now, Xi, have that same pretension, the idea that we will become great, we will control and rule the world, and I will be the one on top. All of them have envisioned the idea of a global empire. And what's fascinating to me is we call people like this Alexander, like Alexander the Great, and yet he led to the destruction and death of hundreds of thousands of people. <laughs> and then he died. But they all envisioned this, this great global empire. And it, with every one of them, it seemed for a time that they were unstoppable. So that people like Genghis Khan, which we don't hear much about, or even Attila the Hun, who had the largest empire geographically that's ever been built by any person or conquered by any person by striking such fear and terror on people that they basically were believed that there was nothing that could stop them in their conquests, that it was inevitable that they would control the entire world until suddenly they were stopped. Sometimes they were killed, sometimes they were defeated. In many cases, they just dropped dead like Alexander or Attila or Genghis Khan. There just came a point one day where the God just kind of pulled the plug 
and they had their own sort of electromagnetic pulse that turned their engines off. And I often wonder how terrifying that moment had been when they suddenly awakened in the presence of God. And he looked at these men who had nothing but pursuits of glory and grandeur, and he said, depart from me, you doer of iniquity. Depart from me into outer darkness. We might wonder why it is that these were always cut off, and the answer really comes in Psalm 75, 5, and, and, and many other places as well. But it simply says there, it is God who judges. In other words, it is God who looks at your life and determines what it's all about. It's not about how, what I think about me. It's not about what you think about me. It's what God knows to be true about me. And he says, he brings one down and he exalts another. So that when we read about Nebuchadnezzar being humbled by God in the book of Daniel, it's striking that what we find in the story is it says that God was trying to say to him, you are not the Lord of the universe because he stood there in his glory and says, is this not great Babylon which I have built? And immediately he became dumb as a donkey or maybe dumber. And he said he went for seven seasons before his sanity returned to him. Yet God kept his empire intact which in, in a sense, it's, it speaks to kind of our current situation, actually. <laughs> I hadn't really thought about that, but it... most people don't realize that when Woodrow Wilson was president, his last year of his presidency, I think it was 1919, he, he had a massive stroke and was incapacitated and uh, couldn't even walk for over a year, and his wife ran the nut country for that year. Of course, that never happened again. But, um, <laughs> but one of the things we find in all of this is that God stopped them, and he does it for a very distinct reason. As Daniel said, he does it when the transgressors have not reached the full degree of their wickedness. There's a point where God says, too far, too much, no longer, I won't allow this to continue on. That basically is saying that if he were to allow these people to conquer without restraint, they would conquer the whole world, which is ultimately the plan that Satan has had over and over again. So that if you begin to look at the temptation of Jesus in that context, you realize that was just another effort. Worship me and I'll give all of this to you. And so in our thoughts about the geopolitical realities of the world and all those things that we watch on the news broadcasts and all that stuff, one of the things we lose sight of is there is really a greater determinant as to what happens, the rise and fall, the success and failures, is ultimately in the hands of God, not of men. And if we fall into the trap of looking for winners and losers and conquerors and people who solve all our solutions, the good guys in and the bad guys out and all that kind of stuff. And I'm not saying those dynamics have no reality to them. What I'm saying is, but it becomes in many ways a backdoor into a kind of idolatry where we're worshiping men rather than God. That we're not humbling ourselves at the foot of the cross. But we're hoping that somebody would rescue us and the problems as we perceive them. That's why God only allowed these demonically inspired conquerors to reach a certain point. And then, according to 2 Thessalonians 2 7, he said, He restrained them. This is how it reads it says, For the secret power of lawlessness. You see, when you see this idea of one world government and the historical efforts of man after man after man trying to accomplish this, you have to see what's really at work here is not just a person who has an army. Because if you've ever listened to Adolf Hitler's speeches, as I have, you go, where's the beef? How did he so influence people and, and move them to do such horrendous things? Well, it's because it's not him. It's a dark, demonic power that's flowing through him that seduces and wins people into a demonic cause. That's why he said in the last days, people would give heed to doctrines of demons, which simply means they believe the lies that Satan and hell tells them, and they will follow them with all of their heart, mind, soul, body, and strength. It's a secret power of lawlessness. Mean, lawlessness means throwing off 
the rule of God in your life. He says it's already at work, but the one who holds it back, the one who restrains it, will continue to hold back or restrain it until he is taken out of the way. He said, then, when the restrainer is taken out of the way, the lawless one, which is the beast, the Antichrist, the one world leader, will be revealed. The word revealed there is apocalypto. It's the same word we use for the book of Revelation. That he'll be uncovered. It'll be opened up. That which is veiled and conceived will be made obvious and unmistakable. So that you and I, I believe, are living in a time where we're beginning to see the layers of the onion being peeled away. And more and more, we're beginning to look at what's going on in our world. And on one hand, we go, what is this, all this craziness, this insanity, this weirdness? How did all this thing pop up? And the answer is, it's because the restrainer is being removed. Last week, I talked about how the economic plumbing was already in place to change the whole economic system of the world. And yet, if you can picture that idea, that image of plumbing, and she realized, as I was talking to a contractor the other day, you put all the plumbing in, and then there comes that moment where you turn the valve and the water begins to flow. The restrainer is the one who has his hand on the valve. God is beginning to pull, I believe, that valve back, and we're beginning to see the flow of wickedness and evil in our world. And it's staggering how few people are aware of it or recognize it. God always allows evil men to prosper for a season. Psalm 73, Asaph complained about the wicked. It seems like they have no problems in their life. They don't go through no difficulties. Everything is easy for them. And he says, and then I look at myself and I've got conflicts and trials and struggles and all these things I go through. And he goes through this whole complaint cycle about how they've got it easy and I've got it hard. And then he says, but then I went into the house of the Lord and I saw their end. And then he repented. I saw where it was leading them, what was coming in their future. And I think so often as we see wickedness prospering in our world that we began to get very vexed and distressed and concerned and forget that there is an end. That if you sow to the flesh, you will reap corruption. It's an unavoidable fact of reality. It's more set than the very laws of nature because it is the laws of God. And I think he lets these men prosper. We wonder, why, God, are you allowing this? Does it not confront us with that idolatry of thinking if there's some conquering hero or some dynamic statesman that we can look to who will answer all these problems when, in fact, the answer is in Christ alone? God seeks to correct our hubris He confronts man's repeated efforts to build utopian towers to heaven in an effort like Nimrod, as it said of him in Genesis 11, to make a name for ourselves. In other words, to lift up our name, not his name. It's fascinating, the psalmist said, that God has exalted his word even above his name, and in Judaism there, the name of God is so reverent and so exalted, you're not even supposed to speak it. You just have what they call the tetragrammaton, the Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, Jehovah. We speculate as to how it's pronounced, but the pronunciation has been lost because it was too holy. So when you look at your English Bible and it has Lord and it's L-O-R-D in capital letters, that's almost always, if not always, the word Yahweh. But they won't speak that because it's too reverent, too glory. And he says, yet here we will do this thing. We will exalt our name. That's why I always laugh when people talk about, well, you know, I, I, I'm concerned about my legacy. Don't be concerned about your legacy. You'll be forgotten rather quickly. 
I remember when I first moved to Spokane and saw this amazing statue of Abraham Lincoln in uh, downtown in the city center in front of the federal building there. And, and uh, I mean, I was really impressed by it. Then I realized, I wonder if Abe is appreciating this t- statue. Let me tell you, he's got other things he's focusing on. <laughs> But we get so focused upon leaving our mark in the world and having our legacy. Somebody once said, don't worry so much about what people think about you because you'd be surprised how little they do. It's such a crazy thing, you know, that we realize that there's only one name under heaven that can save. There's only one name under heaven <laughs> that can fix everything that's wrong. There's only one name in heaven that should, under heaven that should be worshipped, and it's not yours. I'm sorry, Taylor, it's not yours. (laughs) By the way, for those of you who are like to bet on the Super Bowl, I I, I don't want to brag, but I've called the winner of the Super Bowl correctly every year for the last 20 years. You might want to write this down. What I found is a team at the end of the game that has the highest score always wins. So you may want to call one of those 35 states that has made it legal to gamble. (laughs) But uh, just a little help there. You know, it's it's not like you didn't get any value added to your time here today. But what were they seeking not to do? They wanted to glorify themselves, and then they said, not be scattered over the face of the whole world. In other words, global unity. Unity. The Jewish historian Josephus explained from the rabbinical point of view of the first century. He said, Nimrod said, if God should attempt to drown the world again, he would build a tower too high for the waters to reach. He persuaded his subjects to ascribe their strength not to God, as if it were through his means they were happy, but to believe that it was their own courage which procured procured that happiness. Now, we know God stopped Nimrod by scrambling the languages and thus hindering people's ability to communicate and collaborate in what God described as some rather nefarious activities. He said there's no limit to the evil that they can do. Their imaginations will be able to run wild if they can collaborate together and communicate together. So what I'm going to do is make it impossible. I'll scramble their languages. And that has been a very successful system up until this moment. And that's why when I began to see that the separation, the barriers between language and communication are being erased. As I go to foreign countries, I don't need to speak the language. I just go into my Google app and I say something or type something in, and then it speaks it to the person behind the counter. It's really interesting how it changes. You see, Daniel said in the end times we would be, that knowledge would be increased. And he said men would be going to and fro across the face of the earth. And we live in an age where transportation and technology have bridged the gap between nations and cultures so that the world is becoming concentrated. We are so economically integrated that we cannot truly suffer anything being broken. People worry about China and and invading the United States. You have to understand that China has only one real market to buy their goods, and we are it. And I hate to tell you how many things we have to buy to keep this place running, that the boxes come made in China. I just saw three more in, in the side room over here. All of our electronics that we need to run these lights and all this stuff, we had to order all of that from China. And it took a long, long time to get it because they don't make it anywhere in the United States. And I think that's why we need to step back and say, this is such a unique time in the history of the world. There has never been one since the fall where people have been able to bring together. 
So that what we find now, if you follow it at all, there is a concerted international effort to build a new Tower of Babel. I call it the UN. It's composed of disparate groups. We have the World Economic Forum, which is hugely influential, although it has no real legal designation. They call them NGOs, non-governmental organizations. But when you have all of the leaders of of commerce and government meeting together, and as Klaus Schwab, who is the founder and the president of the WEFs, said that basically they have their people on the cabinets of every major country in the world, people like Justin Trudeau and almost his entire Canadian cabinet, we, we wonder how they move so quickly into Nazism, and the answer is they're following the agenda. But we all have the European Union is full score on, the, the corporate world, uh, even increasingly the diminishing of the United States as a world power, which I don't think is accidental, as I mentioned last week, I think it is planned. But it's all centered around this idea that the United Nations will bring us together in some kind of global unity that promises to solve all of mankind's problems. Now, my personal conviction is that the church is the restraining force in the world, and when the church is taken away, which strikes me, that phrase being taken away, he's talking about the rapture of the church. Then he said the Antichrist will come on the world scene and the tribulation will begin. But sudden destruction and fiery torment is not a fixed destination or destiny for anybody. God's desire is not to destroy, but to save. And I mean, we have to understand that every person who will be cast off and suffer for eternity is also made in the image of God and is given by God all of the potentiality of life and, and grace and goodness. And the question would be then, why is it so rare in our world? And I think the answer is because we have a choice. You see, when God first wrote a description of himself, he described who he was. It was to Moses in Exodus chapter 34. This is what God said he looks like. He said he is the compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgressions, and sins, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. This is repeated, the most repeated passage in the entire Old Testament. It's quoted some 57 different times from Genesis to Malachi. Constantly being reminded, this is who I am. This is who I am. I am not the God who is standing there with a hammer and sickle waiting to harvest and crush whatever I can, but rather I am a gracious, compassionate, merciful, loving, patient, long-suffering God who does not want the wicked to die. In fact, my, my, my favorite reiteration of this is in Jonah's uh, short little book, where in chapter 4, he said to God, I know that you are a gracious and a compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. In other words, calamity literally translates as evil or distress or misery or injury, adversity. The worst of the worst, he says, I know that you relent from doing that. In other words, it doesn't mean that God changed his mind or God simply got weak in the knees. But it means that God just simply is looking for the opportunity to forgive. God is looking for the opportunity to bless. And that's something I think is is a strange concept in our culture. Because we have one side of religion that says God has no value system, so do whatever you want. A whole school of philosophy that says there is no such thing as truth. So there is no right and there is no wrong. There's no good and there's evil. 
And there's another group within even the church that says, well, yeah, God doesn't like that, but you know, he's like that dotering old grandfather in the White House who can't recognize the good or bad, or you know, he just loves his kid. Be whatever you want, be whatever you want to be. I don't really care. And yet, if you go to Scripture, God describes himself as being that unbelievably loving, compassionate, forgiving God, but he and looking for the opportunity to relent of the judgment that we are so deserving of. And yet there is a point where God says, his justice will prevail. I think the message is vitally important that God is foremost a loving, merciful, and kind God, but he is also a just God. That is, he said to Ezekiel, he said, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. I think it's important when we read books like Revelation that we read it through that lens, that God is speaking of what's coming not because he wants to bring it, because he does not want to bring it. He's warning us because he does not want us to be injured by what's coming. Because if there is no turning, if there is no repentance, which literally means a, a change of mind. We just, you see everything with a new set of eyes. Well, there's an unwillingness to admit to that we are guilty of sin, that there's no ownership, that we have a nature that is bent towards sinning, no acknowledgement of actions that we've engaged in that are wrong. He said, all that's left is a fearful looking to of judgment. The psalmist put it that way in Psalm 145 when he said, The Lord is righteous in all his ways, gracious in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will hear their cry and save them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked will be destroyed. Now, I've never known a wicked person who ever described themselves as being wicked. It's not a title that we'd like to, you know, carry around. And yet, wicked just simply means that your path is away from God, not to God. Being wicked is ultimately the difference of being good. It's just become a practiced pattern for such a long time that the darkness of your thoughts and your actions and your way and your will are so profoundly different from God's, that you're outside that circle of redemption. That's the point. There's a limit to God's patience, and men must repent. In fact, Revelation is one of those books in the Bible that uses the word repent frequently. When he said in chapter 3, verse 19, those whom I love, I rebuke, and I discipline, so be earnest and repent. Now, <laughs> I remember my dad using that phrase. I think it must have come with becoming a licensed parent or something. As he took off his belt and said, this is going to hurt me worse than you. And I, I don't know, you may have, you probably don't believe this. I was kind of a smart aleck. And I remember very clearly telling him, I said, then why don't you let me hit you? <laughs> that didn't work either. <laughs> Yet despite Revelation's terrifying, terrifying description of this coming judgment, he tells us that men will refuse. That three-quarters of the earth's population that has not yet turned to him, they will refuse. He says, the rest of mankind, in chapter 9, verse 20, that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent. They did not stop worshiping demons nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Instead, he goes on in chapter 16, verse 9, to say, they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues and refused to repent and glorify him. They cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sorts, but they refused to repent of what they had done. Which brings me, finally, eventually, at last, to this pale horse. You see, the word pale is actually somewhat of a pale translation. It be, might be uh, more accurate to say it was a yellowish green, kind of like the color of a corpse in the early stages of decay. That's the image he's portraying. 
The rider is appropriately named death or thanatos in the Greek, thanatos, which means the death, death of both the body and the soul. And he ta- basically he's pulling Hades behind him, which is the place of hellish torment. It's a picture of eternal separation from God and eternal suffering. It's the worst of both worlds. And so he's saying that when that fourth seal is opened, such horrific terrors will begin to descend upon humanity. And yet rather than repenting, most of them will continue to fight. This fourth angel, this fourth rider, this angel of death and damnation, he says, we're given power over the fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. It's interesting because that's exactly the description that Ezekiel gives for the coming judgments that were coming upon Judah and Israel. But it's describing a loss of life on a level that the world has never seen. Yet this is actually the nature of wars. Maybe this is just consequential. Because what we know today is that as many as 90% of the people, the casualties who die in war, are not the combatants. That 90% of the victims are collateral damage. They people die of starvation and disease, not from combat. But what is far more troubling is the possibility that this mass killing is not consequential, but rather it's intentional. Now, you might wonder, why would I say such a thing? Because there is a growing sentiment, a growing belief among those who I referred to last week as the evolutionary elites, that the only way to save the planet in their utopian dreams is to dramatically reduce the worst population. I mean, in 2020, uh, primatologist Jane Goodall, we remember Jane Goodall, you know, she's see her holding these little chimpanzees and it's so sweet and touching and so forth and so on. But she delivered a message and she said that if she had magical powers, I would like to, without causing any pain or suffering, reduce the number of people on the planet because there's too many of us. It's a planet of finite resources and we're using them up. And when I hear people say things that like, think to my, so why don't you do yourself in then? <laughs> I mean, how in the world, how arrogant do you have to be to say, you know, just a bunch of you should die off. We just need to get rid of a bunch of you because you know, after all, you know, I, you know I, I'm going to run out of toilet paper at some key moment. And we, I can't imagine the itching would drive me crazy. Maybe even more concerning were the views of one of the most influential members of the World Economic Forum, Yuval Noah Hariri. Many of you know his name. Listen to some of the things he said. We don't need the vast majority of the population. Most people don't contribute anything. Technologies increasingly will replace people. The biggest question will be what to do with these useless people. My guess at present is a combination of drugs and computer games. He then went on to say, human rights are just like heaven and and like God. It's just a fictional story that we've invented and spread around. Take a human, cut him open, look inside. You don't find any rights in there. The only place you find rights is in the fictional stories that humans have invented and spread around. So our constitution that basically says we have the right you know, to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? You know the thing, you know, you know, you know the thing. <laughs> basically, Hariri says... That's just fiction, because at his core, what he's saying is, there's no right or wrong, there's no good evil, there is no God. In fact, he's an atheistic evolutionist who writes books that aren't scientific, they're more made-up stories. But nonetheless, he wrote a book that covers the entire history 
of the world, beginning with our first primordial ooze. And there's nothing special about us. Do you understand that you have these competing theologies, the evolutionary atheistic views, which basically says there's nothing, there is no God, but that also means there's nothing special about you? That you have no inherent worth or value, your life or death, your existence or perishing. That doesn't really matter. It's just, you know, and then you wonder why a whole generation of children raised on this kind of theology look at life so nihilistically and say, what difference does it make? They fall into the ancient Epicurean philosophy. It says, let's eat and drink and be merry because tomorrow we'll die. And as they're eating and marrying and <laughs> partying and having all this fun time, they're beginning to suffer, as they now describe it, financial dysphoria, which means they've spent all their money and they're broke. We used to call it bad management of your resources, but now it's a dysphoria. It's a mental condition that I didn't have any responsibility for. You see, these are the people whom the elites, those who are shaping national and international policy, especially in this current regime we have running our country and running Canada and running most of Europe, they basically are listening to these guys admiringly. And how long before they conclude that you and I are just simply a waste of resources because we're useless people. You see, Satan hates what God loves most. And God loves people most. Satan wants to desecrate. He wants to deform and he wants to destroy. And I, 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 let me take a little short stroll through a minefield here. But as I watch commercials on TV, it's amazing how obsessed we are becoming about aging and our appearance. I saw an ad for a mask that you could put on, and it emits LED lights that reduces the wrinkle in the aging of your face. And I thought, as I was watching, I thought, that does work, because as long as they have the mask on, I can't tell how old they are. <laughs> I wonder if that's in the instructions. Put it on, never take it off. <laughs> but you sit there going, you're gonna be, so you're going to make a really good-looking corpse. And that only lasts for about 30 years until you return to dust from what you came. So what, but it's, it's amazing to me. I, 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 it's, it's like this obsession because people are terrified of death. God's image upon the earth is not seen in what is outwardly displayed, but by what is inwardly displayed. And the further we get from God, the more we worship the outer. And the closer we get to God, the less that concerns us. As I explained last week, last week you know, that there's a, such a thin balance between prudence and panic. And when you talk about your body, I mean, there's prudent things that you should do. You should feed it and care for it and do the right things. You know, there's some things that you should eat and there's some things that you should not. Most of you should never touch a large amount of chocolate. That's only a dispensation given to me. Chocolate and coffee, it's really the, the staple diet. But the whole idea is, you know, there's a prudence. We look at that and just go, you know, your blood pressure is too high, your, your glucose counts are too high, and maybe you want to, you know, give up the Dunkin' Donuts or something. And I mean, there's a certain prudence in life. There's a certain prudence about storing up for the future and making preparations for the fact that you may not be able to work forever and you need to be able to retire. There's all sorts of things that just plain prudent things that we do in life. But what happens is it gets pushed into a panic and you know it's a panic when you're obsessed with it and it's all you can think about. And you worry about it all the time. Now, people under ask me, do I buy gold? And I explain to them, well, no, because if I have to run fast, it's too heavy. 
So a guy, this is such a deal. I found it on the internet. Such a deal. He, he, he sold me a bunch of lightweight gold. The bars only weigh two ounces. It's, it's amazing. And if you believe that, I'll give you the website afterwards. <laughs> we live in a, in a crazy, crazy time. And it's going to get crazier. So where do you find sanity and stability and consistency? How do you survive all that? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and God will take care of everything else. Simple. We just need to be prudent, but not panicking. We need to be faithful to him. Because when it's all said and done, there's only one opinion that matters, and that's God's. What does God know to be true about you? Nothing else matters. There's a tremendous freedom that comes from that. Especially when we say, well, you know, you're not making me happy anymore. You don't bring me flowers anymore. <laughs> and my explanation is real simple. Have you seen the price of flowers? <laughs> okay, I'll go pick the neighbors. But... And, and, and we're, we're so frustrated in our relationships. We're so frustrated in all the things that are going on in life. And, we, and you don't realize this is just a, a ploy of the enemy <laughs> to get you to look at the wind and the wave and the storms and begin to say, God, don't you care that we perish? And Jesus gets off his pillow and looks around and goes, oh, you have little faith. <laughs> Be still. Everything ends. And they're left saying, what kind of man is this? Uh, he's not just a man, he's God. And that same God is in you if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And he would say to you in these crazy moments in which we live, be still. I've got this. I've already told you what the future is. Do you think I ha don't have a plan for you in terms of what's coming? Our prayer, our passion, our purpose is to live our lives in a way that we can walk the walk, we can talk the talk, and most importantly, we learn to bend the knee <laughs> before our Lord and Savior and acknowledge Him I'm like you. I, I, there's a part of Revelation I really struggle with. It's when he says, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And I say, Lord, if you come quickly, there's a bunch of people in my circle of prayer that, <laughs> that, that don't know you and aren't walking with you. And Please, Lord, save them. Save them. Bring them to the cross. Help them to bend the knee to Jesus. Father God, I pray that you would help us all to see our lives in a divine perspective, not just simply within the context of the moment that we're living. I just think about so many of the individuals we read about in the Bible who were, found themselves in such dire straits, and as Joseph said, but this was God's intention, not that I might be in a place where I could save many people that Esther would be able to recognize that she had come to such a place as she was in, that she was born for such a time as this, that over and over again, even as Paul said, I was like one who was born out of time, and yet you chose me when I was in the darkest, deepest, deadliest place, and you lifted me up and set me on high places. God, I pray that you'd help us to understand that we are people of divine destiny, that we have been designated by you from before that, before that first twinkle in our dad's eye, Lord, that you had destined and designed us to be here in this moment, to live in this time, to serve and to walk after you. And to be able to say to a terrified world that Jesus saves, that Jesus is safety that Jesus is peace. He is happiness. 
He frees us from the bondage of sin and death. Help us, God, to keep our eyes focused, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.